Genesis chapter 3. And you'll find it on page 2 in the Pew Bibles. As we come now to God's Word, let's, uh, let's pray. Jesus, we want you. The words of that song we've just heard, Give Me Jesus. Lord, I pray uh, that you would show us why we need uh, you this morning. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, friends, Genesis chapter 3, page 2 on the Pew Bibles. Let's hear God's word. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me. And I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly. You shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. 
Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and also of the tree of life and take and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Do please sit down. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Cottage Church. It's wonderful to be together and studying God's Word. Many exciting things are going on at Cottage Church with these new pastoral candidates that's so necessary for the progress of the gospel here. Exciting to see people candidating and moving forward on the mission field as well. We come this morning to this passage and of course what it's teaching us is this, that the fall is not only true, it's also real. That is, the truth of the fall has daily consequences in all of our experiences and all of our lives that we know, really. Sometimes perhaps you've heard it said that the Christian doctrine of the fall is one of the Christian doctrines for which there is indisputable empirical evidence. That is, we are not as we want to be. None of us here this morning. We feel that things in the world go as they should not go. It is disordered, sometimes deranged, the direction of the universe. Yet the fall is also the Christian doctrine for which there is the most resistance, I find, and has been the most resistance throughout the history of the church. People are quick to find other interpretation for the undeniable data. And perhaps if uh, traditionally Christians have felt that using the analogy of this passage that other approaches to the uh, life as we find it all around us uh, internally and externally, other approaches from other religions and philosophies are mere fig leaves covering up the reality They feel that we are imposing a sort of negativity on people, unwarranted from the text, let alone from practical thinking, however much it might be cheered on by Augustine or Calvin. And so original sin or total depravity or even the metaphor of the fall itself is by many people viewed as an imposition upon Humanity, and even an imposition by some scholars upon this text? Would it not be better to view people as blank slates, tabula rasa, not as 
born in sin. Is it not better to say that people can be improved by education and made healthy by their culture around them? Is it not more appropriate today to encourage people that they can become more disciplined and godly by their own efforts than to tell them that they are totally depraved and originally sinful and in Adam all shall die? Aren't we beyond that now? Well, to answer those questions, we need to not only examine carefully what really is going around in the world, but in particular, examine Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> you see, in it we will find sin, judgment, uh, God's sentence on sin, and yet also a hint of salvation. And those are going to be the three aspects of the theme this morning, sin, judgment, and then salvation. And my goal is to help us see why we need Jesus. And so be drawn to him again. This passage is intended to teach us to trust God and his grace alone for salvation. See, here's how it works. When you downplay sin, you diminish salvation. When you dilute depravity, you undermine mercy. When you speak mildly of our rebellion... You cannot speak loudly of God's grace. So as we saw last week, because of creation, we the created a worship to our creator. We're here because of the fall. We can, we can glory by faith, repentance and faith in God's gracious redemption. It should lift us up and wonder at what God has done and take us to Jesus. From the sewer, the stars shine brighter. Now, before I do that, sin, judgment, and salvation, I just want to make a couple of comments that may help you to see what I am trying to do and what I'm not trying to do. And so first, just because this morning I'm going to hold up the Christian doctrine of sin does not mean that I support every explanation that you may have heard about sin. Sin can be preached in a way that is manipulative or even inquisitorial. Again, my goal is to help us see that a greater consciousness of sin will lead to a greater joy in salvation. That's where I'm going. Second, just because I do support traditional doctrines, usually called things like original sin or total depravity, that does not mean that I necessarily support what you think I mean by those words. The Bible, in fact, as we saw last week, also teaches that you and I are made in the image of God, of high dignity and responsibility. Now, of course, here's, here's how this works. Our sin is not thereby made less by that concurrent reality that the Bible also teaches. No, it's made greater. A spider can eat its young, but a human mother may not. <laughs> a child may get into a little bit of a fight in the playground over school and be told off and, but expect to grow out of it. But a president may not punch his cabinet however much he may feel like it. And our high image set in the Bible story against our great fall 
to reveal its inexplicability and to drive us to Jesus. First then, sin. So this passage, particularly if you look down verses 1 to 6, teaches us that sin is rebellion. Now it does not use the word sin and it doesn't use some of the cognates in in Hebrew for sin. What it does instead is it describes the story as a rebellion. How does it do that? Well, one, I think by first of all, drawing a restrained veil over the actual origin of evil. Sometimes people come to this passage to try and figure out the origin of evil. But this passage does not determine the origin of evil. No, the serpent, that ancient serpent whose image, Revelation, later picks up on, that Jesus refers to, that Paul fears that the Corinthians may give way to in that temptation. That serpent is here. But how did he come here? We're not told. There may be other passages in the Bible that give a little bit more detail, but here we're just left to ponder the big questions such as, with the sovereignty of God, whence evil? Did God allow the serpent to tempt evil? And if so, why? And if he did not allow, then how did the serpent do it? And does that mean that there is an equal devilish power of compatible strength to God's? And since that cannot be true, with the rest of the Bible's description of God and Genesis 1 and 2, the omnipotent creative power of God, we're left to use such ideas as the church has done, like evil is just the corruption of good. It's not a substance. Evil, the darkness of which the shadow of of the light. Such kind of ideas that Augustine put forward and C.S. Lewis uh, used as well. I myself also, I, I like some of those ideas, I myself also wonder this, that the very question, the origin of evil, exposes our misunderstanding about evil. That is, trying logically to explain evil is actually a contradiction in terms. Evil is illogic. Chaos, it is irrational, it is, evil is indefinable by definition. I also, of course, wonder whether our attempt to figure out the origin of evil was rather an extended current dialogue such as the woman and uh, the man had when they were confronted by their own responsibility. It's not me, it's something else. At any rate, systematic theologians have helped us to avoid the sort of Manichaean error of two rival deities or the unthinkable of attributing evil to the sovereign God by formulations such as, if God permits, he wills that something would happen against his will. Maybe that's helpful. Edwards has this kind of, God sovereignly weaves evil and dark that good and light may be revealed more to his glory and praise, of course, reflecting on Romans 8. Or Joseph says to his brothers, you planned it for evil, but God planned it for good, that which is now being done, the saving of many lives, or as we say, it takes us to Jesus. But of all this, the origin of evil, there's a sort of restrained veil. I'm not saying you can't say anything about it from here, but... There are limits, right? Two, this passage uh, does uh, show us that sin is a rebellion by revealing the nature of temptation. Now, this serpent, he is very cunning indeed. And that word cunning can sometimes be sort of prudent, but here it means tricky or deceptive. 
And in fact, his first question is, is in some ways really untranslatable. Uh, Martin Luther says that he could put it neither in German nor in Latin. It starts with the sort of really or actually, and it's a kind of astonished mockery. Really? God said don't eat from any of the trees? So it's not just casting doubt on God, though it's doing that. It's making God sound ridiculously restrictive. Then the woman replies in this temptation that uh, we are being revealed here. The woman replies, her first mistake, one wonders in some ways, uh, Attempting, of course, rightly to correct the serpents in that sense, good, but showing, showing her leaning towards the serpent's perspective by now calling God just God, not the Lord God, the Yahweh covenant God, oh, God. And then she adds to God's word by saying, you shall not touch it. Um, one commentator historically, Calvin, seemed to think that she was piously trying to keep her distance from the tree and approves her addition of, oh, we can't even touch it. But to me, this sounds like incipient legalism. She's, she's adding to God's word. So when the serpent makes God's restrictions look petty, the woman in the temptation now half agrees by saying, well, she, oh, yeah, I can't even touch it. How often we do that. We make God's law greater than it is, and thereby less than it is. And then the serpent flatly denies God's word, of course. One uh, person thinks that uh, he may actually be uh, quoting from God's word deliberately here. It's a, a very ambiguous kind of sentence. So it could be, not, quotes, surely die, but eyes open. And here, again, cunning, what the serpent promised shows uh, is cunning because it is a half-truth, and by that even more of a lie, as we shall see in a moment. Some say this temptation is against God's goodness, others against God's word, but to me it seems to be both. The serpent denies that God's word is good and therefore denies that God's intentions towards us is good and therefore that he is good. So what is temptation? Temptation is the idea implanted that God's plan for us is bad. How do we resist? Well, that will come as we come to the practical applications of the end, but of course right now we can see that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, resisted by knowing God's Word, and we resist Him standing firm in the faith, as the Bible tells us to do. Not negotiate, resist. Here, though, also then three. Sin is rebellion. How three? The original sin. Now, this, of course, is verse 6, and it's a rather difficult verse, uh, and, but to understand it, we need to understand the prohibition of not eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that uh, mean? And the key to grasping that meaning is, I think, verse 22, later in the passage. Uh, you can look at that if you, if you like, and you can see there that this knowledge of good and evil is something that God has, you see. So that immediately rules out several options. This cannot be the knowledge of good and evil about sex. That would be impossible to say that's something that God imputed to God. You, couldn't, you can't say that. This cannot be about experiencing evil sort of, you know, tasting evil, for, for that would also be impossible to say about God. 
And for various reasons, it seems to me that the right approach is that this is about determining what is good and what is evil. God, the prohibition here about eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is from trying to be like God in the sense of now making the rules. So a woman and man who both eat and are both guilty, as God makes clear in his sentence later, are seeking to attain the God-like status of determining what is right and what is not right. That is, they want to be the universal boss. <laughs> this sin is rebellion against the rule of God. And one of the reasons why I think that's the right way to approach it is several times in the Old Testament, a similar phrase is used in similar ways. So Moses talks of small children not yet knowing good from evil. That is not able to make the right choices in this regard in Deuteronomy. Or Solomon prays for the wisdom to rule over his people to know good from evil, First Kings. Or David was flattered by someone that he had the perfect rule determining good from evil, Second Samuel. So it's about this making the rules, the universal rule maker. Man, intended to be the moral vice regent of the universe, is attempting to dethrone God, as someone said. So in this sense, of course, the serpent's promise comes true, as God confirms in verse 22, but in a hideous, hateful, and fanciful sense. Yeah, they're trying to be little gods with fig leaves around their loins, hiding behind the Creator's trees. So this is sin as rebellion, and of course, as we describe it, it should make us flee from it. One sin massive consequences. And we know that principle even in our lives today. One uh, Dutch theologian, uh, Bevink, said this, one hour of thoughtlessness can produce a lifetime of tears. And so however mysterious may be what theologians call the federal headship of Adam, that is, as in Adam all die, however mysterious that may be that Paul talks about, Theologians call the federal headship of Adam. However hard that may be to grasp, we know it's true. Every time we lock our car, we witness to its reality and truth. Second, more briefly, judgment. This is verses 7 to 19. And though it's a longer passage, I'm just going to explain it briefly in a, in a few bullet points. There'll be six and they'll be brief. One, fellowship with each other is broken. And so their eyes were opened to realize that in their autonomous desire to be gods, they can now no longer have a center of gravity relationally around the true God, and therefore they're now each other's enemies. They're vying for precedence. So sin always breaks human fellowship. By contrast, as Melanchthon put it, it's impossible for a creature that the love of God has not saturated fully to love itself. Only the love of God can cause us to love each other. All fellowship is best restored by restoring the altar of God's worship. Two, fellowship with God is broken. Their shame, their hiding, both their bodies and their presence behind the Creator's trees 
shows how guilt has distanced them from the divine. God has not moved, they have. His walking was a normal presence in the garden. What was not normal was their hiding. And so God questions them with three questions. Where? Who? What? Not for his information, but for theirs. He's revealing to them graciously their situation so that in time to come he might remedy it to show their need as we now know of Jesus. They are the diagnostic questions of the healer God. Three, God curses the serpent. Note that while both the woman and man receive sentence, neither receive directly the curse, though we live in a cursed world, only the serpent and the ground which the man works. That's an important distinction, I think. Four, childbearing becomes pain and marriage War. So the woman now trying to be like God will try to dominate and rule over the husband. That's what that part means. And the man will fight back and repress and suppress her. In other words, the battle of the sexes has begun. What was before a rightly ordered relationship has become a war ground for supremacy. Childbearing, the great joy of many a woman, has become also the source of great pain. Five, the ground is cursed. Because man is no longer seeking to subdue the earth, rule over it under the rule of God properly and responsibly, the thorns and thistles will grow up like the sluggard's field in the book of Proverbs. His work itself, work, remember, created good and part of the creation itself, the created order, is now, though, also frustration and a burden. The trouble with milking cows is they never stay milked. The trouble with email is the inbox never stays empty. The trouble with committees is their meetings are never brief. The trouble with farming is it never stays farmed. Man's labor, like woman's labor, is now what we know to be by the word. Labor. Sisyphus rolls his boulder up the hill. Six. God's sentence is death. Dust you are, and to dust you will return. Now, death in the Bible is not simply the ceasing to exist, though obviously it includes that. Now, death is the exclusion from God's presence and therefore from the source of all life, and so being under judgment. And so man is now expelled, another, if not equally good word for fool, expelled from God's presence, from the garden, where it's impossible to return with the mighty cherubim who guard the temple, who are symbolically represented on the curtain and stand above the ark, and in the vision of Ezekiel with a flashing, turning sword, making return to God and the tree of life, the source of life, impossible. Yes, man did not immediately cease to exist, but he did immediately die. He's on death row. The sentence is delivered. Death. Third, and therefore, and more encouragingly, salvation takes us to Jesus. So with such a situation of sin and judgment, salvation is humanly impossible. Yet here it is declared, at least in beginning, in three ways. Here they are. One, chapter 3, verse 15. 
This is the text that is sometimes known by the phrase uh, Proto-Evangelium. Chapter 3, verse 15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, not everyone here has seen here the foreshadowing of the gospel. Luther did. Calvin did not. I do. While seed or offspring, as Calvin said, can be a collective, it can also be a singular, a collective noun, it can also be a singular. And given that Adam is the collective head of the human race, logically there seems to me no problem with viewing the second Adam, Christ, as both singular and the head of the new creation in this promise. And so from Justin about A.D. 160, and Irenaeus about A.D. 180, Christian commentators have often seen here, Genesis 3, verse 15, the first glimmer of light. This seed, as Paul put it, born of a woman, Galatians 4, verse 4, means that in principle and at the end, finally, Satan will be crushed under his and in him our feet, Romans 16, verse 20. Because as Jesus says through his life, death, and resurrection, Satan has been defeated, and we in Christ have authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the evil one, Luke 10, verse 19. And this seed, Christ, is the seed promised to Abraham and here declared in the curse to Satan because ultimately such redemption is first about the redeemed glory of God. So Colossians 2, verse 15, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. All beginning and announced here. Two, and furthermore, that this is the intention of God by these words of striking and bruising and crushing against that old serpent Leviathan, the dragon of Revelation, is confirmed, I think, by Adam's strange name-giving to the woman. So look at verse 20. Now woman is called Eve because she will be the mother of all living. Adam has been listening. There is a life promise that has been given to Eve and through her that will come the salvation of the world, the promised childbirth which will be her salvation and the salvation for all who believe. And Eve, Adam sees, resonates with life and so he calls her Eve. That is, in English it might be saying life ear to her. I'll call you life ear because it's from you, life. She's always the mother of the living, and through her the seed will come, the one who will redeem his people from death to life, life here, Eve. In fact, I think in chapter 4, right after this passage, Eve confirms as much when she seems, I think, the Hebrew is a little strange there, she seems to think that perhaps her first child, Cain, could be the one. She's going to be the mother of, the seed's going to come through her. Through her will be the serpent crusher. Could it be? Cain? And that question reverberates throughout Scripture. When and who will be the serpent crusher? Beginning here. Three, right now, right then, there is still, in the meantime, grace. So now look at verse 21, and whether you understand verse 21 of those garments sort of put together somehow by God for Adam and Eve as the first sacrifice. Some do. 
or whether you think it's just a statement of general care and God's grace in that sense as, as others do. Either way, God is indicating that, no, that, that though they now do need covering, which is a sign of the fall, such covering He will provide grace at work right here. So then in conclusion, I want to just give you four uh, brief practical applications. Here they are. One, would you believe in the historical fall so you can appreciate the reality of the historical Christ and resurrection? It's a very good book that uh, I've asked to be put on the bookstall. Uh, I think it's not there yet this Sunday. will be in subsequent weeks. You can find it on uh, Amazon or wherever you go for such books. But by C. John Collins, this theme that as in Adam we died, as Paul said, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Is Christ real? Is, then Adam is real. Now, that does not necessarily mean, and people put this passage together in slightly different ways, that there could not be any symbolic elements to it as Revelation picks up on those symbols. But it does mean, I think, and again, you can put that together in worse or better ways, but it does mean that the account itself, as in Adam, so in Christ, the account itself describes something that really and truly happened. seems to me that the New Testament makes it clear that however you put it together, a historical fall leads you to a historical Christ, showing you why you need Jesus. Two, would you not give in to the idea of minimizing the reality of sin, original sin? Here's how this works in my observation. Most False religions and false teaching is built upon a doctrine that we did not fall so far and therefore we can raise ourselves up with a whole series of rules and rituals. So if you want to restore worship of Christ, what you've got to do is preach the seriousness of sin. If you want to maximize Christ, you cannot maximize human morality. And systems that maximize humans minimize Christ. If you, if you find that hard to believe from me or from Scripture, perhaps listen to a philosopher like Schopenhauer who said, thousands of people who before our eyes are peacefully commingling in public must be viewed as just so many tigers and wolves whose mouth has been secured by a strong muzzle. He's talking about social politeness and correctness. If you find it hard to believe the written word, would you believe the living word? He who hung dead for thee. That's how serious this is. And if that is not enough, frail human, 
You still don't believe me. Just take your keys and leave them outside your house with your credit card and see what happens. Now, we are not as bad as we could be. God's restraining, covering, garment-giving grace. Praise God, we are not. We are not as bad as we could be. But if you take off the muzzle and look inside, you can see a tiger. Three, Christian, would you learn from this passage to resist temptation? How, you say? Well, do the reverse of what you see here. That is, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Not negotiate. Just resist. That is, believe that God is good and his rule is good. All things work together for the good of those who love him. Just make a decision this morning to believe that. Again, in reverse, that is, speak every word that comes from the mouth of God. Don't add to it and thereby detract from it. Fourth and finally, in terms of practical application, would you glory in the sovereign, gracious, unmerited, planned from the beginning, provision of life in Christ, the serpent crusher. Just glory in that if you've received him. If you haven't, Genesis 3 is not only true, it's real. Well, as the story goes on throughout Genesis, uh, Adam and Eve will go east of Eden, Cain, will go east of Eden. The builders of the Tower of Babel will go east of Eden. And then Genesis 12, God will begin to gather a people for himself through Abraham. And then one day, the seed, the serpent crusher, will come. His people will be redeemed. Let's bow and pray together. Perhaps there is a temptation that you are on the verge of uh, giving into. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Uh, perhaps uh, this morning you are realizing the human state, the situation that we are in. Do you hear the gospel promise in Genesis 3 of the serpent crusher and put your faith in Christ? 
Christian, would you make a fresh commitment before Jesus in the quiet now to know his word and believe that God is good? Lord, we thank you for the wonder that even in Genesis 3, you announced the gospel. And we praise you for that. And lift up our eyes and glory in that salvation. In the name of Jesus, amen.